0: at, and uh, I'd like to ask you to please turn with me to our text this morning, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. John chapter 1, verses 1 through through 14, and we are uh, in a sermon series right now looking at, um, we've called it a promised land, but what we're really looking at is uh, we're sort of tracing the presence of God with his people uh, through scripture, and so we've seen that in a couple different ways, first with God making himself known to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, and then traveling with them in their wilderness wanderings uh, with the tabernacle, and then a couple weeks ago we saw him permanently establish his presence with the Israelites in the promised land. Um, of Canaan in the temple and uh, today we see God extend his presence to us as human beings in yet another new way so John chapter 1 verses 1 through 14 and this is what the text says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was with God in the beginning through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made in him was life And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, um, I was reading something recently and came across a quote by President Dwight D. Eisenhower that surprised me. Uh, At the end of his presidency, in his farewell address on January 17, 1961, Eisenhower said this, about the U.S. military and the, Americans arm, and the American arms industry. He said, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Now, I don't have a slide of that quote because uh, I was expecting to be outside this morning. Um, so I know that that's a little complicated, but in other words, what Eisenhower is saying there is that if left unchecked, our nation's military and the supporting arms industry that uh, supports it could pose a threat to our democracy. If given too much influence in our government, it would be very easy for the military or the private companies that support it to, as Eisenhower puts it, endanger our liberties and democratic processes. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry, he says, can prevent that from happening. To put it another way, according to Eisenhower, it's up to us, the average American citizen, to make sure that we are informed and aware enough so that we can actually provide a check and balance on our military's influence and make sure that it it doesn't take over our democracy in ways we wouldn't want it to. Now what surprised me about that quote uh, wasn't necessarily what it was saying, but instead who it was coming from. Because if you know anything about the biography of uh, President Eisenhower, then you know that he wasn't some hippie or anti-war pacifist who was opposed to the military or its related industries on principle. Instead, he was actually a career military man himself. He was a former five-star general, and he even served as the supreme allied commander in World War II. And yet, despite his military background, he apparently still felt that it was necessary, as outgoing president, to warn of the dangers that the military could pose to our country if it wasn't kept in check. And again, given who he was, that's a rather surprising statement to hear from someone like President Eisenhower. Well, in the same way, the pages of scripture contain some surprising statements too. For instance, the very notion of scripture itself is kind of a surprising idea, at least to some. The idea that there's a God who exists and that he speaks to us through an ancient book written in a different language thousands of years ago from an entirely different part of the world is, to say the least, surprising to some people. So is the concept that that God is also creator and sustainer, that he not only made the world but continues to care for it and uphold it. And then there's the idea that that same God not only chooses, but actually wants, actually desires to have a relationship with us as human beings. Those are all pretty surprising statements that Scripture makes. But maybe the most surprising statement, at least I think, in Scripture, is not just that God exists. It's not just that he speaks to us through a book or that he's the creator and sustainer of everything in existence. It's not just that he desires to have a relationship with us. Instead, maybe the most surprising statement in all of scripture is the one that says that that same God actually became one of us, became a human being, became a baby born 2000 years ago in the small Jerusalem suburb of Bethlehem. If you stop and really think about that, that's just about the most surprising statement you could ever hear, right? I'm actually not sure that we stop and think about that enough, though. Um, I've said this before um, already in my short time as pastor here, and you're gonna hear me say it again and again uh, in the years to come, but as Christians, I think we have a tendency uh, to become a bit desensitized to some of the things that we believe especially if you've grown up in the church. If you've been a Christian for a long time, then chances are that you've heard things like, God exists, he's our creator and sustainer, he saved us from our sins. You hear those sorts of things over and over and over again. The problem though is that when you hear things like that over and over and over again, they have a way of becoming a bit too familiar. They can even become a bit repetitious or boring They become just things that we say or things that we believe, but not really things that we think all that much about. And so as a result, what should be radical, life-changing, world-changing beliefs end up sort of instead losing their power for us. And the doctrine of the incarnation, this idea that God actually became a human being is one of those things. Due to how familiar that idea has become for Christians, the fact is that it rarely registers as the radical, mind-bending reality that it truly is. Instead, its power and its significance kind of gets lost on us. It's not lost on others, though. There are actually plenty of non-Christians around the world and throughout history who precisely because they haven't become over-familiarized with it, see the incarnation and its implications for exactly what they are. For instance, um, The early Christians' belief in the incarnation was actually one of the things that got them in hot water with the ruling Roman authorities of the time. Um, I'll spare you all the extensive history, which I personally enjoy nerding out about. Um, And instead, I'll suffice it to say that the Romans didn't like the early Christians' belief in the incarnation. They didn't like the early Christians' belief in the incarnation because the fact was that they, the Romans, already believed in another incarnation. That's because for the Romans, they didn't believe that God became a human being in Bethlehem circa 4 AD. Instead, they believed he'd already been a human being for quite a while by that point. And that's because for at least many of the Roman citizens, they believed that their emperor, their Caesar, was divine. That wasn't always the case, but over time, that idea had sprung up and become accepted in Roman religious circles, um, and in the Roman uh, pantheon of the gods. So much so, in fact, that by the time Jesus was born, one of the major cults that you could join in the Roman religious system, if you were a Roman citizen, was the cult of the emperor. In fact, it even got to the point where the Romans would refer to their emperor uh, in Latin as Divi Filius, which translates the son of God. And they worshiped their emperors as such. So with that in mind, when the early Christians started proclaiming the incarnation of a different son of God, how do you think that struck Roman ears? You can see why the Roman authorities would have been a bit suspicious of the new church, right? Of the early Christians. In fact, that's part of why they started to persecute and oppress them. Because to Roman ears, when the early Christians said that they believed God had become a human being, it sounded like they didn't think he already was one. It sounded like they didn't think that the emperor was the son of God. It sounded like they didn't think that he was divine. And that sounded unpatriotic. In fact, it sounded downright treasonous. And so the implications of the early Christians' belief in the incarnation would not have been lost on the Roman government they lived under. Quite the opposite. It was actually part of what got them in so much hot water with the Romans. And as Christians our belief in the incarnation still gets us in hot water, even today. For instance, um, Muslims have a very hard time with that idea. You see, in Islam, the Quran teaches an incredibly high, lofty, elevated view of God. He is holy, powerful, incomparably exalted and elevated above us. And you might say, well, don't we believe the same thing as Christians? And the answer is yes, but Islam sort of takes that even a step further than we do. You see, for Muslims to even say that God wants to have a relationship with us, that kind of language doesn't make much sense. The idea that God would condescend down to our level as sinful human beings and enter a relationship with us doesn't really fit the Muslim worldview or, or the way that the Quran conceives of who God is nor does the concept of God loving or caring for us either. According to the Muslim view of God, that's just not what he's like. He's holy. He's too holy, actually. Too lifted up, too exalted to give us that kind of time and attention. And so if those ideas are already a challenge for Muslims, how much more the incarnation? The idea that God would actually become a human being From what I've learned about Islam, most Muslims would probably say that's downright blasphemous to say. It's going too far. It's too scandalous to say that sort of thing about God. It's too shocking and outrageous to think that he would ever do something like that. From a Muslim perspective, believing that idea that God might become a human being, it cheapens him, humiliates him, disgraces and even desecrates him. And yet that is what we believe as Christians, right? The simple fact is that as Christians, we do believe that God became a human being. We do believe that he condescended down to our level. We do believe in the incarnation. And we see that idea clearly expressed, at least as far as the Apostle John ever clearly expresses anything here in our passage this morning. Now, I'll be honest, there's a a lot here in John chapter 1. John has a way of layering his words with so much meaning and power that it takes time to unpack the things he says. He does that here in his gospel, he does it in his letters, and he definitely does it in the book of Revelation too. There's a depth to John that demands to be taken seriously, to be lingered over, to be chewed on, And so there's more here in our passage this morning than we're going to have time to get to. Instead, for our purposes, I just want to explore two main things that John says here. Two claims that he makes. Two main points that he tries to get across. First, there's something that John calls the Word. And he makes the provocative and kind of mysterious statement that in the beginning, the Word was both with God and also was God. And then second, John says that that word also became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so what I want to do just for the rest of our time together this morning is look at those two statements. I want to try and unpack them a little bit and get at what they mean. I want to try to understand who or what this word is and why it has come and made its dwelling among us. And so let's start with that first one. Let's start with this thing, this entity, this person that John calls the Word. Um, In the very first verse of his gospel here, John begins things by writing, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." Now, uh, truth be told, there's been a lot of ink spilled over the centuries about what John means when he talks about the word, and I'll hardly be able to do that discussion justice this morning. But at the very least, we can venture to say at least something about what John is talking about here. Put simply, the word we translate in English as the word is the Greek term logos, and it has a very interesting history in both Greek and Jewish thought. For starters, on the Greek side, uh, at least in Greek philosophy, the logos, or the word, referred to the governing principle of the universe. In other words, the logos was the thing that the Greeks believed made everything else work. It held stuff together. Without it, stuff would fall apart. But with it, stuff would stay working the way it was supposed to. In other words, their idea of the logos was a little bit like a screw. I've been putting together a lot of uh, new furniture for our house recently, and uh, screws are invaluable in that sort of work, right? Because they hold things together. They keep things in place. They keep stuff from falling apart or breaking down. Without them, things collapse, but with them, they hold together. And for the Greeks, the thing that they believed did that the thing that they believed held everything else together and kept them in their proper place was the Logos. It was that essential and non-negotiable ingredient of the universe that kept everything in balance. It kept the universe organized, it kept it sensible, and it kept it from falling apart into chaos. For Jewish scholars then, at least by the time that John was writing, they kind of borrowed that word Logos and they used it to refer to God's law. Even though it was a Greek word and a Greek philosophical idea, Jewish rabbis who'd been influenced by Greek philosophy borrowed it and started to use it to refer to the divinely inspired law of Moses. And it's not hard to see why, right? After all, if you're a religious Jewish person, that's what the law did. The law was the thing that held everything together. It was the thing that made everything else work. It was the thing that made everything else go. It was the thing that kept everything from falling apart. And so for the Greeks, the logos, the word, was the essential, non-negotiable, governing principle of the universe. And for the Jews, they believed that that governing principle was actually God's law. Well, here in our passage for this morning, John actually writes to both of those audiences. He writes both to Greek-speaking people who would have been somewhat familiar with that Greek idea of the Logos, and he writes to Jewish people who would have been somewhat familiar with how Jewish scholars had started to talk about the law of God. And he says, you know, I think you're on to something here. There is something that governs the universe, There is something that holds it all together and keeps it from falling apart. There is something that's central and non-negotiable to everything else and makes sense of it all. It's just that that something isn't a bit of philosophy. It's not a nice idea or a theory. It's not even God's law as important and significant as that is. In fact, that something that holds everything else together isn't actually a thing at all. It's a someone. It's a person. Let me tell you about him. You see, for John, the Logos, the word, wasn't just a principle. It wasn't just a belief system or thought structure. It wasn't even the divinely inspired law of the Old Testament. Instead, it was the second person of the triune God. God's son, Jesus Christ. He was the word the Logos, the one who governed the universe, held it all together and made it all possible. According to John, he was the one those Greek philosophers and Jewish thinkers had been talking about all along, even without realizing it. He was the one in whom all things hold together and in whom all things found their meaning, significance, purpose, and value. Not only that, though. I mean, that's important enough of a statement, right? But John actually goes further. Not only that, but according to John, not only does that word exist and not only is that word a person, but that word, John says, actually became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's what John writes in verse 14 at the end of our text this morning. He says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That's actually the truly radical part of what John says here. That's the part that would have caught the Romans' attention. That's the part that stops Muslims in their tracks still today. And that's the part that if we really stop to think about it, should stop us in our tracks too. Because what John is saying here is that the Logos, the word, the person who governs and holds the entire universe together, God himself has actually become one of us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He's become a human being. He's taken on our flesh and as John puts it, has made his dwelling among us. Now the Greek word for that To make your dwelling is an interesting one. It comes from the noun skine, which literally means tent. And the way that John's using it here, it means to pitch your tent. It's a word that's used a lot in the Bible, not so much in the New Testament, but quite a bit in the Old Testament, especially when the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness. In fact, most of the time, it referred to one very specific tent. A tent that we actually talked about a few weeks ago when we looked at Exodus 25. And that's because that word, skene, that the Bible uses, uh, used quite a bit throughout the Old Testament, it uses to refer to the tabernacle, the tent sanctuary that the Israelites used throughout their wilderness wanderings. The tabernacle was a skene. And so when John says here that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, what he's literally saying is that this logos, this word, this universe governing son of God, Jesus Christ, pitched his tent Set up his campsite, if you will, tabernacled among us as human beings. Right here in our very midst. Right here in our very flesh. In other words, what John is saying is that just like God pitched his tent and tabernacled among the Israelites back in the wilderness, he's pitched his tent and tabernacled among us again in the person of his son, Jesus And that, of course, ties into everything that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks in this sermon series. I said earlier that this whole sermon series has been about tracing the presence of God with his people throughout Scripture, right? First we saw how God only extended his presence and relationship to a few certain individuals, you know, Adam and Eve in the beginning. Then Abraham and Sarah, Moses at the burning bush, there are other examples as well. But then at Mount Sinai a few weeks ago, we saw that something changed. Because for the first time in history, God called an entire group of people into his presence, the Israelites. They were his chosen people, the people that he had rescued and redeemed from Egypt. The people he'd promised to protect and care for and be with. He invited them into his presence and into a new kind of relationship with him. And then we saw that he actually went with them wherever he led them, with the tabernacle, with that tent that they brought with them in the wilderness. And then finally, a few weeks ago, we saw that God made his presence with his people permanent in the promised land by coming to dwell among them in the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, each step of the way, what we've been seeing in these passages is God's presence slowly getting closer and closer and closer to his people. First, he was present with individuals, then with a group, then while they were traveling, and then finally with them in their land. We said that that's because that's what we were created for as human beings, right? We were created for a relationship with God. We were created to enjoy his nearness and his presence. Because of our sin, we lost that. And yet what we've been seeing in this sermon series is that bit by bit, inch by inch, step by step, God is working his way back to that. Back to the kind of relationship he intended to have with us. Back to the nearness and closeness that he created us for with him. Back to how he intended things to be in the beginning. We said a few weeks ago that before their fall into sin, scripture gives us the image of Adam and Eve actually walking and talking with God in the Garden of Eden, right? Well, when Jesus, the Logos, the Word the governing principle of the universe, the fulfillment of the law of God, the one in whom all things hold together, when he took on our flesh, and became one of us and made his dwelling among us, what did he do? He walked and talked with us, right? He taught us. He told us what it truly looks like to have a relationship with our Father. And then most importantly, he went to the cross for us. He died in our place for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. And then he rose to new life so that we could experience that new life too. And that, of course, brings us to the gospel. You know, I said earlier that while the word skene, tent, is used a lot in the Old Testament, it's not used much in the New, Um, and that's true. There's just not a lot of tense in the New Testament, um, and there's not a lot to talk about with them as there is in the the Old Testament. And yet, that word does pop up at least a couple of times in the New Testament. Specifically, it's John who keeps using it. He uses it here in John chapter 1, and he also uses it a couple of times in his last book, the book of Revelation. And one of the places he uses it is right there towards the end, in Revelation 21, verse 3. In that chapter, John is having a vision of how God will eventually restore his creation. He writes, for instance, that he sees a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heaven. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. He says that God will wipe away every tear. All the sadness, brokenness, hurt, and grief of this fallen world will disappear. And John says that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The one on the throne will say, I am making everything new. And he tells John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. That chapter is a beautiful picture of how God will one day restore his world, set it right, and redeem and renew his entire creation. But right in the middle of it, right in the very center, verse three, John also records this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will be with them and will dwell with them. It's the same word there, skene. At the end of all things, which is really the new beginning, of all things. John tells us that God will once again pitch his tent, tabernacle among us, and make his dwelling with us, his people, once more. That's one of the final things, one of the final images that John leaves us with in the Bible. But you know where it all starts? Here in the first chapter of his gospel. In the Garden of Eden, God tabernacled with us by making his dwelling among us the way he meant us to experience it, the way he meant us to experience his presence. In the Old Testament, after we lost that presence because of our sin, God tabernacled with his people again, first at a mountain, then in an actual tent, and then finally in his temple in Jerusalem. But even that wasn't close enough. And so eventually he went a step further, and he tabernacled among us once more made his dwelling with us again and became present with us in a new way. But this time, it wasn't at the top of a mountain. It wasn't in a tent somewhere in the wilderness. It wasn't even in a temple. This time, it was as one of us. In the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the Logos, the word, God came among us, pitched his tent, and became present with us. And because of who he is, and what he did for us as our savior, one day, the fact is, the promise of revelation is that God will tabernacle among us yet again. In his restored, renewed creation, he will give us his presence, his nearness, his closeness in such a way that we will never lose it again. He will come down from heaven, make his dwelling place among us once more, and be present with us just like he always intended to be. That's the hope and future that we believe as Christians. That's the kind of restored relationship that we believe Jesus Christ has made possible for us with God. And that's the power and significance of our belief in the incarnation. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Thanks be to God, amen. Will you pray with me? God, because of our sin, it would have been entirely possible, even easy, for you to permanently turn your back on us. And yet, when we lost our relationship with you and your presence and closeness, you did not do that. Instead, over and over and over, the history of your relationship with your people, and in the pages of scripture, what we see is time and time again, you call people back into your presence. Thank you for giving us your presence through the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for everything that he did for us and the forgiveness he made possible. And Thank you for the restoration of our relationship with you that we have in him. It's in him that we pray. Amen.